only the best run here at the Indianapolis 500. Mario, who do you feel you'll have to beat in this year's race? People like uh, A.J. Foyt and uh, Bobby Unser, for instance. Stand by for the checkered flag. Absolutely incredible. Danny Sullivan spun in front of Mario Andretti. A.J. has done it. He has won his fourth Indianapolis 500. Beyond the Bricks with Jay Query and Mike Thompson on 93.5 and 107.5. The Fan. Fast Friday edition. How are you? Jake Query along with Mike Thompson from the Emmis headquarters in downtown Indianapolis in what is now the epicenter of the racing world. It always is, of course, but qualifying gets set for uh, getting set this weekend starting tomorrow. A week's worth of practice in the books and now getting set to set the stage for the 105th running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. And Mike, Whenever this time of year comes around and you get set to looking at the field and you're looking at drivers, I always wonder to myself, one of these guys or gal is going to have one of those races that they're going to lay awake in 25 years, staring at the ceiling, thinking about, wondering what could have been. And you and I were talking about it, and I said, why not do... For Beyond the Bricks, which we have done and had a great time with, why not do a two-Friday, one of them being tonight, the next being next Friday, which would be Carb Day evening, the 80s tonight, the 90s next week, but something I think is going to be a lot of fun, unless you are Roberto Guerrero or, you know, Alan Jr. in 1989 or whoever it might be that we're talking about, you know, Robbie Gordon in the 90s, near misses at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. And the reality is, man, there are plenty of drivers that fall into that category. Yeah, and I mean, and I think there's different categories of near misses, right? Because you have Rick Mears, who had a near miss in 1982, which we're going to talk about, but he already had a victory under his belt, Correct. and he's going to get more opportunities, and he's going to get more victories, which we obviously in 1982 we didn't know, but he's he will win more opportunities. There are other near misses, Kevin Kogan, for example, Roberto Guerrero. They don't un- they don't unfortunately they they don't get into victory yep. lane they don't get on the borg warner trophy and and a guy who i'd like to see to be candid with you on the borg warner um who uh, does not fall in the category of the 80s and the 90s but a guy i'd love to see get on the borg warner trophy because he was so close jr hildebrand yeah because and the way he handled it right, right because he handled it so well and i talked to him i know i'm digressing because he's not really in the scope of what we're talking about over these two shows but i talked to him one time about the fact that i said you know you sign autographs and you know obviously i'm really in tune with the autograph community i really care about that but i said you sign autographs of your you know smashed car you know sliding across the start finish line and that's that's a you're constantly signing autographs of your most one of your most devastating moments in your life you know and and he's he's talks about how he told me he's like you know people ask and if if they're really nice and respectful about it you know I, i i always try to accommodate them and i'm thinking I don't know that I could sign something like that, you know, because it would bring up the heartache for me of being that close to my dream one turn away and then, you know, having it all go away in just a second and being reminded of that every time somebody asked me for a picture. And so, you know, it's just he handles it so well. He's so uh, he's such a good guy. And he, uh, you know, I would love to see him get a, a Borg Warner trophy just because of the fact that he, he handled it so well. But these these the, these guys that we're talking about, some of these guys, 
you know, they got another chance and they got their Borg Warner trophy and some of them didn't. And it's, it's a real shame in my opinion. Well, let's go back to the eighties. And, you know, we talked at the outset of this show when we began the month about the 1981 race. So we know about how close it was for Mario Andretti, the 69 winner. But of course, Mario Andretti, you know, a legend, he still has the ring from 81. We have talked about that for those that didn't hear it in 1981 controversial finish, Bobby Unser is ultimately uh, declared the winner, but Mario Andretti was declared the winner the night of the race. There was an appeal. Mario Andretti still has the winner's ring. He has never relinquished it. The decade began in 1980 with Johnny Rutherford winning, but Tom Sneva started 33rd in the Bonjour Action Jeans special and took it all the way up to second, but was not able to get the win. Johnny Rutherford, who had a really, really, really good, uh, you know, obviously that... Pennzoil Chaparral is one of the more famous cars. And that car wasn't going to lose that day. Correct. It had to break. I mean, that was one of those. I mean, there are very few races that we go in going, you know, we know who the winner is going to be of this race. That's one of them that if you in your pool and and the race morning of 1980, you drew Johnny Rutherford, you were getting the money unless Johnny Rutherford broke or something really unusual happened. Correct. Because that car was not going to lose. And then 1982 rolls around. And the 1982 race begins with melee. It begins with, and you and I have talked about it, poor Kevin Kogan getting loose at the start. And, you know, if you're going to have an incident at the start of the race that is going to theoretically knock out of contention immediately a couple of contenders, you probably don't want to pick Mario Andretti and A.J. Foyt, who are the two most popular drivers, arguably, in the field. But absolute melee from the beginning of the 1982 race and whoever would have guessed mike the a race that started out under such chaos would end under such drama yeah i mean obviously one of the most famous starts and one of the most famous finishes in in one race uh and that race had everything for you at the at the beginning and the ending um you know i still feel for kevin i mean i I don't think that Kevin did anything wrong, in my opinion. I think something broke on the car. I will always be convinced something broke on the car. Um, you know, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. If you're gonna, if you're gonna bounce off two guys, the two guys you don't want to bounce off are are AJ Foyt and Mario Andretti. You you want to you want to have that happen with a couple other guys so it doesn't go down in in speedway history where you're you're looked at um, in a different way. Though you know, and unfortunately, I think as I've said on the show. You know, I think the way Kevin has been perceived and the way Kevin has been treated is a bit of a travesty because he's one of the nicest people you'd ever want to meet. Um, he's a really good guy. He's always been good with the fans, but I think he's gotten a little bit of a raw deal because of what happened in that accident. And I think he got left hanging out to dry, in my opinion. Um, and that start of that race, you know, it was, you know, it was obviously a debacle, but that can happen. Um, and it, it did. Uh, unfortunately, I think that's defined his his career unfortunately but the exciting finish we got there um you know so much so much drama i mean what what often gets overlooked about that race is the fact that once they drop the green flag to start the race aj in a car that's been damaged goes out there and leads and and kind of runs away at the beginning of the race and you know that takes incredible courage i think to have a car that you know you're not you're not really sure going into turn one at at full speed what you've got and aj Foyt, i mean obviously one of the most courageous athletes of all time 
he goes in there, sticks his foot in it like we all know he's going to, and he goes out there and leads until until the car fails him. But one of those finishes that, you know, I think, yes, there's been other closer finishes now, but I think the drama, especially, I think for me in 82, that's one of the greatest finishes for me because of the fact that, you know, the great call, you know, Jim McKay, you know, you can, you can hear the you can hear the fans over the roar of the engines, you know, and Jim McKay really did such a masterful job on that call of that television finish and that the radio call is so good. I mean, I think the radio call of 1982 and the radio call of 1992 are two of the finest examples of sports play-by-play that I think you could ever find in any sport. Jim McKay at one point said, never before have we seen anything like it at Indianapolis in 1982. Uh, We mentioned the earlier accident at the beginning of the race. Uh, Roger Mears is one of those whose races ended before it began. But his brother Rick, who had won the race in 1979 and was going for an opportunity for a second Indianapolis 500, Gordon Johncock, who had won the race in 1973, and I think, Mike, one of the things that is somewhat poetic about 1982 is for Johncock, yes, he won the race in 1973, but without getting into all of the specifics of it, I think many people would tell you that 73 was one of those races that people just assume forget. It just there, there were rain delays, the weather was terrible, you had horrible accidents, you had a tragedy on pit road of a crewman getting hit by an emergency vehicle that was going out to assist to Swede Savage. It just, everything about it was a disaster. Yeah, it was a complete and utter catastrophe. So I think, I think there are some times that it really does work out the way it's supposed to. And I know uh, a couple weeks ago on the show, I mentioned about 1963, you know, the rules had the rules been followed you know, Jim Clark would have won as a rookie, which for me as a Jim Clark fan, that would have been really cool um, had Jim Clark won in 63 and 65. But that would have robbed us of Parnelli Jones having won the Indianapolis 500 at any point, which I think would have been unfortunate. I think the, the 500 is better for having Parnelli Jones as a winner. Right. So I would like to have had the rules followed. But on the other hand, I would like to have, um, you know, had Parnelli Jones as a victor of the Indianapolis 500. I think 1982 for me, I was a big Rick Mears fan. So I wanted Rick Mears to win. And I was, I remember being devastated when, you know, when I heard the call on the radio, listening to it live uh, at the barbecue in my, you know, at my, at my grandmother's house. And, and he came up just short and I was just devastated. And then later in life thinking, but yeah, that's really the way it should have worked out because Gordon Johncock never got to celebrate 1982 and and really to be candid 1973 or 73 that's what i mean yeah 1973 and really to be candid with you he didn't get to celebrate 82 either because his mother passed away immediately at at that same time so it was really a, a, a devastating personal loss for him in 82 as well so he he had you know a terrible situation happened with his with his teammate in 73 and then and then with his mother passing he i mean he really never got to to have the full celebrations I think Gordy deserved but but really that's it's it's what you said it was a poetic nice thing to have happened that the Gordy won the race so let's go back to the 66th Indy 500 which took place on May 30th of 1982 Gordon Johncock had a lightning fast sub 10 second final pit stop which at that time was amazing I think it was a nine something pit stop he well because you you remember 
the STP guys, they only put in enough fuel that Gordy needed to finish say, the he, race. He short-fueled it, right? Right. And and the Penske crew, it's interesting because you you think of the Penske crew as this well-oiled machine. They filled Rick all the way, you know, full, full tank. And a lot of people think that cost Rick the race. Now, you know, Rick, Rick may tell you that, you know, that I've heard different people say that the car worked better for him with a full tank right. than it did with, with a, a short fill, but they filled the, the car to the full, the full tank. And so that extra second or that extra two seconds, is that enough to lose you the race? In this case, it is. So but. let's go back to 1982. Gordon John Cock leaves the pits for his final stint with a sizable advantage over Rick Mears. But Rick Mears' car was the Gould Charge, and it was on the charge, shaving nearly a second a lap off of Gordon Johncock, which set up for, at the time, the closest and greatest finish in Indy 500 history. Looks like the start of this race. John Cock, then Mears, then turn two. Now Gordy pulls away a little bit as Mears gets a little squirrely in turn number two. They're on the back stretch. It's still Gordon John Cock. Mears is trying, but he's about 10 car legs behind as they streak down this 5 eighths of a mile back stretch to turn three. Less than half a lap ago, Gordy John Cock by five car legs over Rick Mears. They're in the north short shoot. Here they come. This is the final quarter lap. John Cock maintains the lead. The boys of the 500 pump. That is Paul Page on the IMS Radio Network. You could hear Tom Carnegie in the background. And what I believe to be the greatest call in the history of that radio network, the ability to not crack his voice, but the complete drama and incredulous nature of what he is seeing and setting up the final anticipation from Bob Jenkins. I was going to say, wasn't Bob Jenkins great? Bob Jenkins in turn four with the absolute, in my opinion, call of the race and why he is the legend that he is as well. Afterwards, Rick Mears talked about as the first of our near misses, even though obviously he became a four-time winner. He would be a five-time winner if not for that 82 race, Gordon Johncock holding him off. Here is Rick Mears' recollection of that finish. For the experience and knowledge that I had at mm-hmm. that time, you know, with another couple of years' experience looking back, I might have done something a little different, but not much because all the decisions made on that day were given on things that I knew. And again, that's part of not taking the risk and staying within the limits of what's going on. And it was a combination of things that, you know, looking back, things that I would change were not necessarily things I did. Now, what's interesting is a year later in talking about drivers that could have had number five, coming off of that race in 1982, now we go to 1983 and there is a new driver in the field, a rookie, by the name of Alancer Jr. in the Coors Light Silver Bullet, who qualified fifth, obviously was no stranger to the Speedway, although Al Jr. told me one time that I believe the first race that he ever attended on race day was actually the 83 Indy 500 because he was a student. You know, he was in school, even though his dad was running in it for all of the years prior to. But Alancer Jr. finds himself in the race, and lo and behold, what happens late in the race, really late in the race, 
but Tom Sneva is in the lead of the race. Or actually, I take that back. Uh, Al Unser is in the lead of the race, and Tom Sneva is wanting the lead of the race. And guess who's the guy running in between? Do you remember back in the day that there was a uh, company and it was called TCR and they put out slot cars called the jam car? Yeah. And you remember that? Yeah. You'd, you'd have uh, two cars and then there'd be the one little jam car that would get in the middle. That's what I always think of immediately when I think of Al, Al Jr. in 1983. I think of the jam car. I'm going to be the jam car in between my dad and you, Tom Sneva. And that's that's all effectively what it was. I mean, was it a you know overtly like i'm gonna weave back and forth and you know no, but i'm gonna make it as absolutely difficult as possible for you al unser in 1983 was a three-time winner he was pursuing win number four he assumed the lead on lap 173 and he was trying to hold off tom sneva closing in on the final 10 laps of the race but he did have a barrier for himself in the form of his son Two or three times we've seen Little Al slam the door on Tom Sneva and keep him from catching his dad. I don't know whether Little Al's doing it intentionally or not, but he's doing a great job of blocking. <laughs> doing a great job of blocking. Now, Little Al's been asked a lot about that, so the question is for Al Unser Jr., uh, was it indeed blocking? What was the idea there in trying to get your dad to victory lane? In 1983, when I was a rookie back here, you know, it was a dream come true for me when I first pulled out in opening day practice to pull out onto the racetrack in an Indy car. And so uh, that was a, a, a lifelong dream come true for me. And then, of course, as the month went on, to be able to qualify for the race was another dream come true. And then, and then when I walked out there race day morning, uh, knowing that I was going to compete in the 500, um, another absolute dream come true and so i i i just i soaked in every minute of the entire month and then uh and then we got to go out there and race and and uh and just so happened that that um at the end of the race i was in a position that uh that i could try to try and help my father win his fourth indy 500 and uh but Tom Sneva was just a little bit too fast, and 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 Dad was a little too slow. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, for the first time, for a father son to compete against each other in the in the history of the 500 uh, was a great honor, and 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 we were truly blessed about it. And again, Tom Sneva and the Texaco star Tom Sneva goes on to get the win back in 1983. When we come back, Mike had mentioned it. Sure, our first two near misses there prohibited a couple of guys from what could have been eventually stockpiling as a five-time winner. But there are those that might still think about what could have been because they were denied simply being a winner at the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Our first of those gentlemen that we will talk about is next on Beyond the Bricks. Back here on Beyond the Bricks... Jake Quarry along with Mike Thompson. Fast Friday in the books. Getting set for qualifying tomorrow for the 105th running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. And one of the great things about the Indy 500, every year, Mike, I think to myself, something might happen this year in the race that we talk about for the next 30 years. You never know what it is. What you want for certain is that you want to make sure that Mother Nature cooperates. What I mean by that is we've gotten up to 1983 here in terms of the 80s. 
1984, Rick Mears wins. 1985, you have something that happens that, you know, Danny Sullivan has told me before in in conversation with him. I remember he joked to me once, hey, I, I was – he works in a, in a business. He owns a business that that has to do with aeronautics and airplanes and things like that. And he said, I went to do a speaking engagement about that. And I kid you not, they booked me for two hours. And for an hour and 45 minutes, I answered questions about the spin to win. I mean, the, the 360 spin with Mario Andretti in turn number two and straightening the car and going on to win it. You know, you never know what year you're going to see those things. And in 85, that happened. But then in 1986... The year started off, the month for 1986 and the 86500, it didn't get off to a great start just in terms of running the race because, I mean, you want to talk about, I remember watching the national news like on Memorial Day and it was about the fact that the Indy 500 was, unless they were going to run it on boats, man, it wasn't going to happen at first. And you wondered when in the world are they going to get this in? Yeah, there was a lot of weather issues that year. And it was a shame because that was the first year for the, the live broadcast. You know, the That's ABC's right. live broadcast. You know, it had always been the the tape delay broadcast that we, you know, folks in Indianapolis know. But it was it was a live nationwide broadcast in 1986 for the first time. And, you know, they're not able to do it because of the fact that it's, I mean, it was a deluge situation as you were talking about. And, and you know, that was really unfortunate. And. And there, there was talk of, you know, when are we going to have to move this race to because there was so much rain? I mean, they, were, they weren't sure when they were going to actually finally going to get to, to do the race. Uh, Rick Mears started on pole in 1986. And, you know, this past race, the 104th running, the only race to take place outside the month of May, 86 tried. They almost made hard. it. <laughs> almost almost, made almost it. got it there. Because Saturday, May 31st was when the race ran. It was the 70th Indianapolis 500, and lo and behold, what happens? But late in the race, uh, really late in the race, you had an accident that took place. I believe it was Ari Leyendijk, was it It was, not? in fact, Ari Leyendijk. Ari Leyendijk, late in the race, um, has an incident at pit entry, and it brings out the caution flag. And when it brings out the caution flag, you have running one, two, and three, Kevin Kogan, Bobby Rahal and Rick Mears, right? So you have three Americans running one, two, and three. And poor Kevin Kogan, that was when they decide to try to do an interview with him on television during the caution. And Kevin Kogan, in his defense, Mike, you could tell is like, seriously? And not not like early in the caution i mean getting right ready to come back to green it was sam posey was it not that's correct it not look i love sam posey i think sam posey is one of the true gems of the sport i think the things he's done the essays he does uh you know he's done for formula one i think uh you know he's done a lot of really good things uh in the in the world of broadcasting i'm sure he was told to do that that's not one of Sam's finest moments because I think, again, I think, I mean, I worked in television for 25 years. I was a producer for 25 years. I was probably, you know, you know, I mean, it was probably a producer producer telling him, hey, Sam, let's talk to Kevin Kogan. We have the ability to do that. I don't know if I was producing that I would have thought that was such a great idea at the time because, 
it, it really didn't work out at all uh, because we got the famous, uh, Sam, I'm a little busy right now, you know? And, and you know what? And rightfully so. And I thought both of them handled it well Absolutely. because here you are on a nationally televised first-time live event because the Indy 500 had been on Wide World of Sports essentially in tape delay up until that point. From 1971 on, yeah. Yeah, so 86 now you have it live. And what an incredible technology, and it is pretty amazing. We're going to talk to the driver live in the car. Time and place for everything, right? Yeah, well, right, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> and, I mean, I think – I, I mean, now it's a little bit more common. You know, we see that in NASCAR when they, they have their, you know, their stage breaks. And then, you know, it's a little bit more planned. I think it's a little different when you're coming down to the restart that's <laughs> the race of your life. the Indianapolis 500. I, th I think that's a little different scenario. And I think it's also, again, if you do it maybe right when the caution happens and, and you – you give him then a little bit more time to gather his thoughts and gather, you know, get himself ready for the restart. I think that's a different situation than what we ended up with in that case. Um, yeah, again, I think that was really unfortunate for all everybody involved. And you're right. I think Kevin handled it really well. I think Sam Posey handled it really well. I think Sam was a little self-deprecating. Like, I wouldn't want to talk to me either. Right. You know, that's what he said. And, and he was right. I think And Sam that happened in my mind, Mike, and I could be wrong. In my mind... He went to him like as they were entering turn three, getting ready for the. Well, they're restart. getting yeah, they're getting ready for the. They, they were where, where were they? Do you I recall? think they were just getting ready to start the the the, the lap, final lap the final yeah. lap before the restart. But again, it was it was not the right time to do that. If you're going to do it, I think you need to do that a couple laps before that, and then give him some you know the opportunity to gather his thoughts. You know, you know, look at where's Bobby. You know, where's he been good at? You know, all these different things, and and they really didn't give Kevin that opportunity as much as they probably should have. And and I again, I don't think I don't think that was like you like you said it perfectly. It's time and place, and that wasn't the time or the place. I mean, Jim Lampley when they dropped the flag, he says it exactly right. I mean, the Indianapolis 500 at that point is the Indianapolis Five. Right. You know, I mean, it's you've got a couple lap shootout. And you, you know, you're leading the Indianapolis 500 with a chance at redemption here for what happened a couple of years prior to that. You've got Bobby Rahal on your on your right behind you, and you've got Rick Mears, who's a who's a champion, right behind you, in in what's one of the closest three car finishes in the history of the race. You really don't have time to be doing you know interviews and things like that. At that Kevin point. Kogan came to Indianapolis in 1981. He had a pair of top five finishes by the time. He entered the race in 1986. As Mike had mentioned, he was leading the race when the Indianapolis 500 became the Indianapolis Five. But Bobby Rahal was coming awfully, awfully quickly, and so too was Rick Mears. Here's how it sounded. With two laps to go, Kevin Kogan picks up the pace, and they are flying at Indianapolis. The first three are right together. Bobby Rahal charges down the inside, and Rahal comes past Kevin Kogan. And Bobby Rahal took the lead, held on to the lead, and won his only Indianapolis 500-mile race. Mike, and what is one of my favorite trivia questions? Bobby Rahal is the only driver in Indy 500 history. Every race, they record the fastest lap of the race. Bobby Rahal is the only driver in the history of the event, 105 runnings of it, to turn the fastest lap of the race on the final lap of the race and a win. The fastest lap of the race was turned on lap 200 by Bobby Rahal. Once he got that lead, 
there was no looking back. Yeah, that was it. That was it. And that's one of those races, again, you feel for Kevin Kogan. Uh, you know, that would have been a great redemption story. But, again, as we've talked about, the track chooses who's going to win. And it was a great story for Bobby Rahal to win because, you know, it gave the opportunity for Jim Truman to be in victory lane. And Jim Truman, for those who may not remember him, he was, you know, Bobby Rahal's car owner. Bobby Rahal and Jim Truman had a tremendous relationship. And he was uh, terminally ill with cancer. And he only made it a few days past the race. Um, I mean, he was he was not even well enough to to be in Columbus, Ohio for the the celebration parade they had a few days after the race to celebrate Bobby Ray Hall's victory. And, and then Jim Truman passed away of, of cancer and he was able to be in victory lane. He was able to take a swig of the milk and, and be interviewed by Jack Aroot and, and, and celebrate, you know, the crowning achievement of his racing career. But, um, you know, it was, it was a bittersweet moment because he would only be with us for a few days after the race. But, but I, it's again it's bittersweet because you have you know kevin that would have been a wonderful redemption story for kevin and uh you know and it, it turned out to be a uh it turned out to be something really special for the truman family and for bobby rahal obviously and here's exactly how it sounded as rahal took the checkered flag the final roar of the racing engine bobby rahal accelerates and bobby rahal has won his first indianapolis 500 chased quickly by kevin kogan and rick Mears. bobby rahal Indianapolis. 25 years later, Bobby Rahal's son Graham would lead his first laps at the Indianapolis five or in the Indianapolis 500 at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. But Kevin Kogan uh, came home second, and as you had mentioned, Mike, I don't know Kevin Kogan, but I think Kevin Kogan, because of the way the 82 race started and the way the 86 race finished has kind of not gotten his proper due in time as being remembered as somebody that was a pretty darn good race car driver and and pretty darn good at Indianapolis. He would go on, as a matter of fact, to race in six more races after that. He had one more top ten. It came in 1990, um, but always kind of haunted, I think, by those two things. Yeah, and again, I just I just think it's sad the way he's been you know treated and the way he's been portrayed a little bit and and i i always go back to the story from the first time i was ever on wibc which was in 2011 i got to be on a show called the denny smith show people may remember and and we took calls and we did kind of a where are they now where people would call in and and ask where their favorite driver was and a, a guy called in and said he wanted to know about he goes I, i'm calling in to ask about and i'll remember this like this was yesterday he goes i'm calling in to ask about my least favorite driver of all time, Kevin Kogan. And I said, did you, sir, I said, did you say your least favorite? He goes, well, yeah. He goes, I would never pick him as my favorite driver. And I, I just was, it just, it was just like a stake in the heart again because I was just sitting there thinking, poor Kevin Kogan. You know, here's this guy. He's always been good with the fans. He's, he's always treated people really well. I mean, he was always nice to me in person when I met him, you know, for interviews or for autographs and he always he's always signs things in the mail and he he always puts a personal note when he signs things in the mail and you know thanks for remembering me uh and and he just he has this unfortunately this cloud around him with some folks that because he bounced off aj foyt and he bounced off mario andretti and something that i believe wasn't his fault 
um you know it's just it's just kind of haunted him and it's just kind of you know he, he doesn't come back i think and this is just a personal opinion i i don't think he ever has come back for any of the autograph sessions or the things they had the special events because he has to hear from fans oh there's coogan and all this other stuff and and i just wish that it wasn't like that i wish that uh you know he could come back and and he could uh you know enjoy himself and and he could you know have that that experience where where people could uh you know you know, really welcome him, and and you know, he's just he's just a really good guy, and I just wish things were different, and I wish I wish he was treated differently, and I wish uh, sometimes Roberto Guerrero was treated differently than they are treated. Kogan has become a family man since retiring from racing. He lives in, I believe, California. Got into the real estate business in the Los very Angeles area. Very successful real estate guy. Yeah. Very successful. And, Redondo Beach. Uh, very married successful. with a few children now, I believe. Um, Bobby Rahal in the winning photos in 1986 wore a hat that said sleep cheap for Red Roof Inn. Red, Red Roof Inn. Inn. Jim Truman. Jim Truman um, owned Red Roof Inns. But it was a year later, not Red Roof Inn, but rather Heartbreak Hotel that was visited by one of the real near misses of the 80s. And we'll talk about that as we return next on Beyond the Bricks. Nineteen eighty seven, May twenty fourth, as a matter of fact, is an interesting year because it was really the story of three drivers. One a legend, one a rising, rising legend for the time, and another a legend who just kind of backed into, and I don't mean that we'll get into it, I don't mean that as a disrespect to him at all. Uh, a fourth Indianapolis 500 win. Mike, when you talk about the 87 Indianapolis 500, the 71st running of the event, so much is made about what happened late in the race that I think people oftentimes forget. That race was absolutely dominated for the better part of it by Mario Andretti. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was the – Donald sometimes will call someone the moral victor of a race, right? And mario was the moral victor i mean he was on the track for 180 laps and he led 170 of them so that was i mean that was mario's day and it was one of those andretti luck situations I mean, now just, was he in the beatrice machine yet no nah, this was the hannah car wash i believe that's at that right. time that's right yeah the, the beatrice was only a one-year deal and i believe that had already happened was that at 85 that point. or 86 yeah maybe? i think it was 85 was the beatrice machine. i, I, I never i'll be say. honest with you i i never figured out what beatrice was i thought it, it was, was a food conglomerate i thought it was a cool looking car yeah right? beatrice beatrice owned a bunch of brands at the time they owned i think beatrice at that time owned nabisco it's it, it kind of like yum foods type yeah thing? like a yum yeah exactly they were a conglomerate that they owned several different major brands like like a craft right 85 so, was the beatrice car. yeah so they beatrice they ran commercials at the time trying to to your point i remember this vividly because beatrice at the time was running commercials trying to explain what they were <laughs> right and so right. it was like one of their commercial their tagline was we're beatrice and then they would say they owned these 17 different brands or whatever and try to explain who they were okay but uh, they would run those spots during the races all the time. We're Beatrice, and then they would say they owned these, you know, these different products or these different things that you bought, so you know you would know who they were. But uh, they ran those spots a lot. I, I recall vividly the We're Beatrice campaign. Well, Mario Andretti absolutely dominated that race, as you had mentioned. 170 laps he led. His ignition finally got the better of him, with 20 laps to go. And that essentially, and there were two interesting names that were right there towards the front. One of them was no stranger to the Speedway because he had finished second, third, and fourth in his first three races. 
a young Colombian who was mega talented by the name of Roberto Guerrero. The other is one that Mike Thompson, if there's anybody in America that would know where this individual is right now, it would be you. But you want to talk about one of the great one-hit wonders. This is like the taco putting on the Ritz of Indy 500 drivers, uh, Fabricio Barbaza. He owns a fishing village in Cuba. Are you serious? That is correct. He runs a fishing village. Uh, I I don't speak Spanish, so it, I would have difficulty pronouncing the the word. It's it's called Casa Batita or Batista. It's not Batista because that's so a wrestler, okay. but it's Casa Batita or something like that. It's B A T I T A or something. Have I you believe ever like met that. Fabrizio Barbazza? I met him one time. Is and, he a nice guy? And, uh, he, he he was friendly, but I I mean he didn't make a huge impression with me the one time I met him in '87. Because but, I would um, love. To go to Cuba. Yeah, he runs a fishing village. I mean, he's a wow. huge sport game fisherman. There are pictures, there are several pictures of him with like large, wow. I mean, I'm talking large marlin, tarpon. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's a major, major. Uh, he was a charter, he ran a charter boat operation for a little bit and then it became a, a you know, he runs this uh, Casa. But he, again, I'm, I know I'm mispronouncing this word. But. Well, he finished third in his only running of the 587, hmm. but. When Mario Andretti had his incident, the lead was then basically surrendered over to the guy that it fell into his lap. And I'm talking about Roberto Guerrero. And when I say fell into his lap, he was a guy that, you know, he had started fifth. He was right there all day long. Man, was he good. But let's go back to what happened early in the race. And, I mean, it's terrible what happened early in the race. But I'm talking about a tire that came off of Bettenhausen's car and ricocheted off Roberto Guerrero. Yeah, hit Roberto Guerrero. Roberto Guerrero hit the wheel, um, the whole wheel assembly. Correct. Sent the wheel all the way into the the crowd, and a, unfortunately, a gentleman in the top row of the stands lost his life. Um, was hit by the wheel. Um, and was was fatally injured in the stands and it damaged Guerrero's car and that actually had a hand in who won the race in addition to the um, tragedy in the stands so and that happened actually a little bit, bit past halfway I believe right and so Roberto Guerrero continues running I mean it was a tragedy but Roberto Guerrero continues running and if there had been damage to the car, it wasn't really known just yet. And so Mario Andretti drops out on lap 180, and Roberto Guerrero takes over the lead. And Guerrero has a sizable advantage over Al Unser Sr. Who shouldn't, may not even have been in the race. Correct. At this point. I mean, because Al Unser. He had no ride going into the month. And the car that Al Unser is driving was a month before that. A show car in a Sheraton. Right. They pulled it out of a Sheraton. And that was to be, if I'm not mistaken, I'm going off memory, that was to be Danny Angaius' ride at some point, correct? It was, it, was, it was Danny Angaius's ride, which was an unusual situation because, you know, you don't usually put Danny Angaius in that, you know, with as a Penske type of driver but he was he was he was hired to be a Penske driver for that month and then he had an accident and was ruled out and Al Sr. had plenty of offers I mean he's he's told me 
in the past when I did a, a special on him, he said, I had offers for 1987. I could have gotten a ride, but I wanted a ride that I thought had a chance to right. win. He goes, when you're at that stage of your career, you're, you're not going to just take a ride just to take a ride. And he said, I'm looking for a ride. And he, he gave himself a certain date. And he said, if I don't have a ride by this time, then that's it. I'm not going to be in the race. And what happened was Al Jr. had trouble getting into the race that year. And so he didn't make the race on the first weekend. So then Danny had his accident, was not cleared, and then Roger Penske gave him a call and said, Hey, we've got a car for you. It's a you know, it's gonna be a, a year old car, uh, but it'll have a good crew and you know it's a Penske car. And so Al said, Yeah, I'll take that car. And so he started twentieth and and you know, in typical Al Unser fashion, works his way to the front. So he finds himself up front. He's got one car in front of him, Roberto Guerrero, and Guerrero simply has one final stop to make to be A-OK, and to get himself that first 500 win. Let's go back and listen. Roberto Guerrero is in. They top him. Sonny Myers is extra man on this side of the wall, my side, in order to hold the hose, in order to be sure all of the fuel they need does get in. They're looking at that gauge now, getting closer and closer to it, looking two, three, one. Now they're about to shut off. There goes the first, second, third switch closed. They've disengaged. He stalls the engine. Now, back the inertial starter. It is in. Roberto Guerrero fires again. It catches quickly. Luckily, they push him off and won't catch fully. Now it does engage. Now it doesn't. A very slow pull away at the south end of the pit. Ramon, it has stopped, virtually stopped. And Roberto Al Unzer picks stopped. up the lead of the race as Guerrero stops on the pits. Al Unzer picks up the race. The crowd comes to a stand. Guerrero sits silently in the pits. And so that means that the path was, in fact, cleared, as you heard Paul Page call, that Al Unzer was on his way to history. And history is matched as the twin checkered flags come out for our second four-time winner of the Indianapolis 500, Al Unzer. Roberto Guerrero comes across the line, finishing 4.4 seconds back. The Penske team scores another victory. Second, third, fourth, and second for the first four races of Roberto Guerrero's career. Guerrero himself would be critically injured months later in a testing accident at the Speedway when a tire came off his own car, hit him, put him into a coma. But he triumphantly came out of that and ended up on pole in 1992, one of the great triumphs, I think, in the history of that speedway. But absolutely devastating for Roberto Guerrero in a what-could-have-been moment. And uh, I've always felt for him. I've always liked him and uh, kind of wish he could have gotten that one. But it's cool that Big Al got his fourth. Um Man, I'll tell you what, fast Friday, and it went fast, right, Mike? Sure did, absolutely. I mean, it always is going fast when we're talking about guys who won the race. So, absolutely a fast Friday. Qualifying tomorrow. We'll be back Monday, 8 o'clock. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Bricks.